Today from the Global Lane, Britain's new monarch, King Charles, keeper of the Christian faith or multiple faiths. The majority of people wouldn't necessarily call themselves Christians, so I think he will be bringing the monarchy uh, and indeed the church into the, the 21st century to reflect uh, the changed country that the United Kingdom is today. Egyptian churches destroyed by fire. Why the Muslim Brotherhood may be to blame. I absolutely do not think that this is a coincidence. They believe in murdering every Christian uh, on the planet. What to do if a family member or friend is overcome by cancer. The greatest ability that anyone can bring to a cancer patient or their caregiver is their availability. And responding to the Queen's passing, demonstrating respect, but also remembering history in the midst of American overkill. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. The world bids farewell to Queen Elizabeth II, Great Britain's longest serving monarch. So how will Charles III's ascendancy to the throne and Liz Truss, now as Prime Minister, alter the United Kingdom's role in the world and relations with the United States? Well, joining us from London is Young Voices UK commentator, Albi Amancona. Albi, it's good to talk with you. So it's definitely a time of transi uh, transition and change for the UK. First King Charles, uh, how do you expect his approach may differ from that of his mother? Good to talk to you too, Gary. Yes, it is It is a time of change in the United Kingdom. It's, it's almost unbelievable to think that this time last week, Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth was still our head of state and Boris Johnson was still our head of government as the prime minister. And since then, the leadership of this country has, has completely changed. The change of prime minister was predictable. I think most people assumed Liz Truss would win, but it was very, it was a huge surprise to everyone in Britain to see Her Majesty the Queen pass away towards the end of last week. Now, on to the question of King Charles III, obviously he's been waiting for this moment to be king his entire life. When he was, when he did an audience with Liz Truss last week, he spoke about how he'd also been dreading this moment his whole life as well. But ultimately, I don't think he will reign in a style that differently to his mother, the late Queen Elizabeth II. How about his faith, Albie? Uh, since her passing, we've heard a lot about the Queen's devotion to Christ. She always saw uh, her role as a defender of the faith. But uh, King Charles uh, recently said he was defender of the faiths. So what does that indicate? I mean, what, what do you expect there? Well, I think what matters with that, Gary, is what he said in his first address to the nation last week, where he reaffirmed his traditional position, which is that the monarch is the defender of the faith. So I don't think we need to get too concerned about, about comments that he has made in the past. I think he's made it very clear that as monarch, he will be defender of the faith, and then that faith being the Anglican faith. Do you think he's as strong in his faith as his mom was? I mean, the, the queen definitely had a very devout, strong faith. I've seen no indication that King Charles is, is, is not as committed to his faith as his mother was, but the United Kingdom is a, is a different country to when Queen Elizabeth II took the throne. You know, now the majority of people wouldn't necessarily call themselves Christians. So I think he will be bringing the monarchy uh, and indeed the church into the, the 21st century to reflect uh, the changed country that the United Kingdom is today. And in his first address to the nation, King Charles mentioned his son, Harry, and Harry's wife, Meghan, 
who continue to build their lives, he said, overseas. So Megan is an American and they live in California. So do you think Charles will be on better terms with uh, his American daughter-in-law than his mother was, uh, than the queen was? And how might that affect relations with the U.S.? Maybe a visit to America as king soon? As a younger monarch, we can probably expect to see many more international trips than we saw the, the Queen conducting in the final two decades of her reign, where she mostly performed her roles within the realm of the United Kingdom. So I think, yes, I think it's highly likely that we will see King Charles make trips abroad. And what better place to go to than the United States of America, of course, a country which we have a very deep and special relationship with. So that is certainly something which I would like to see. And the king's efforts, of course, are more ceremonial, but England now has a new prime minister, former foreign minister Liz Truss, and she's a conservative, but some folks say she's no Maggie Thatcher. So what can we expect from Prime Minister Truss? A closer relationship with the U.S. than we saw with Boris Johnson? How might it change? I think what we can expect from Liz Truss is probably more of a return to traditional conservative principles of, of low taxes, of pro-business environment, a focus on the family, a focus on self-reliance. That is what she led the UK to believe, certainly during her leadership contest. But one of the first acts that she has made uh, as prime minister is a huge government intervention into the energy market. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the cost of living crisis which we're facing in Europe as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war. But there's essentially a huge energy supply shortage which has pushed up prices and it's essentially making gas and electricity unaffordable for, unaffordable for most people. Uh, I've seen that uh, she pledges to increase Britain's North Sea oil production and also a resumption of fracking. Uh, so she's trying to replace Britain's dependence on Russian oil. So what do you make of this in the direction of her policy and efforts to counter Russia in Ukraine? Ultimately, I think these are the right policy decisions. We have to be more energy independent in the UK, and whether or not that is coming from North Sea oil, whether or not that's coming from fracking, or indeed whether or not that is coming from renewables. What matters is, is that we have a, a, an independent energy source in Britain so that we're not to the behest of the global markets in the same way that we are currently, which is causing uh, these huge hikes in energy bills and is, is, is the reason why this huge state intervention costing between 100 billion and 150 billion pounds is happening. Okay, from London, Albi Amancona, Young Voices UK commentator. Thank you, Albi. We appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Last month, fire broke out at the St. Macarius Church in Giza, Egypt. 41 people died, including many children. The Egyptian government said the fire was caused by faulty electrical wiring. But Coptic Christians believe Islamic extremists may have been responsible. The fire occurred during a church service on the anniversary of the 2013 Egyptian Security Force massacre of Muslim Brotherhood members. Six more Coptic churches caught on fire about one week after the St. Macarius Church fire. Well, here with more is terrorism expert Cynthia Farahat. She's author of the new book, The Secret Apparatus, The Muslim Brotherhood's Industry of Death. Cynthia, it's good to talk with you. So is there any evidence that the Muslim Brotherhood was responsible for these church fires in Egypt? And if so, what? Unfortunately, I do not believe in coincidences especially that the date was the same date of, uh, the, of, of the anniversary of the Rabbah uh, 
some people call it massacre, but it was also uh, it, like a, a terror, a terror uh, operation that was masquerading itself as a, as a as a peaceful protest. They were they were protesting with machetes, with swords, with AK-47s. So it, the fact that the churches were set on fire uh, during the same time, I absolutely do not think that this is a coincidence, especially that the Muslim Brotherhood has been consistently attacking churches since the day they began the terrorism apparatus in the 30s. Uh, they have fatwas that uh, they believe in murdering every Christian uh, on the planet. So I, I don't think it's a coincidence. Maybe the Egyptian government doesn't want to give them leverage or propaganda. That may be uh, it, yeah. and, and that may be it. And, and we know the Muslim Brotherhood has a history of setting churches on fire. Many were attacked when the Egyptian military removed them from power in July of 2013. And contrary to conventional belief, the Brotherhood has a long history of using violence to achieve its goals. And you even mentioned in 1928 when Hassan el-Banna founded the Muslim Brotherhood, he was, it was originally an Islamic jihadist group. So how has it changed over the years? Is it still committed to jihad or has it shifted to accomplishing its goals peacefully and politically? Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has never been peaceful. That would uh, defy the reason for existence. They would lead, they would lose their sole legitimacy. Uh, it is a, a jihadist uh, uh, enterprise. It's a very sophisticated criminal enterprise. The Muslim Brotherhood propagates to the West that they have dismantled their terrorism apparatus, which they call the secret apparatus. But they say this in English, but in Arabic they brag about it existence. Not only that, the Muslim Brotherhood franchised since 1965 their brand of terrorism and started to operate the secret apparatus under different banners, such as Al-Jamal Islamiyah, the Islamic group, such as Al-Takfir Wal-Hijra, excommunication immigration, Hamas, uh, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, uh, even the Taliban. These are all groups that have either been established by members of the Muslim Brotherhood or established and still operated by members of the Muslim Brotherhood. For example, the founders of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahri, Osama bin Laden, and Abdullah Azam were all card-carrying were, were card members of the Muslim Brotherhood till the day they died. And that's according to the own words and documents of the Muslim Brotherhood themselves. So they have never, ever stopped violence. What they have done, is, which, what's worse than violence, is their covert operation. Uh, the secret apparatus controls the Muslim Brotherhood. It also operates an intelligence apparatus and an international apparatus with a very sophisticated structure. They have said in their literature that they have exported Stalin's uh, power apparatuses and their structure, even their names, and adopted them internally in their organization. Okay, let's look right here in the United States. During his presidency, Barack Obama invited Brotherhood members to the White House he offered U.S. support to the Brotherhood rule in Egypt. I'm assuming you believe that was a misguided policy. So why do you feel that way? And how does President Biden's policy toward the Brotherhood differ? 
Uh, I believe that President uh, Biden's government is the third term of President Obama's. I do not see him at all different in any way. It's just President Obama's third term. And they have uh, consistently supported all types of Islamists. They support Iran. They support the Muslim Brotherhood. They support... Uh, Brotherhood-affiliated regimes like Qatar. They have destroyed Afghanistan and handed it to the Taliban. And now they are considering reviving the Iran deal. There is a consistent policy to support jihadists and Islamists, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, with democratic presidents. And it even started with President Jimmy Carter. There's a pattern that I show in my book of behavior and I do I think that patterns reveal intent and when it's systematically on the side of Islamists we have to ask ourselves why okay and I know you believe the solution is to to declare them a terrorist organization the book is the secret apparatus the Muslim Brotherhood's industry of death Cynthia Farahat thank you for joining us thank you for having me The Big C. Many of us fear saying the word cancer. Although more than 600,000 Americans will die from cancer this year, the cancer death rate has dropped by 27% in the past 20 years. Positivity alone isn't making the difference. Here to set us straight is Reverend Percy McRae. Pastor McRae has spent more than 20 years ministering to cancer patients and caregivers at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Pastor McRae, it's a pleasure to talk with you. About two-thirds of Americans diagnosed with cancer will survive it for at least five years. So based on your experience, what makes the difference for surviving cancer? Attitude, positivity, what? It's a whole host of things. Certainly attitude, as the old adage would go, uh, your attitude will dictate your altitude. But when we talk about the things of God, you know, having our mind uh, kind of re-engineered around the, the promises of God, the grace of God, the peace of God, all of those things, the faith of God, uh, helps to enable people to really withstand the rigors of treatment and cancer. And it really provides them with the basic core dynamic of hope uh, that allows them to cope through all of the dynamics that can certainly put a strain and put stress upon any cancer patient. Many people avoid talking about cancer with a family member or friend diagnosed with cancer. So what do many people misunderstand about cancer patients? Well, I, I think that people misunderstand that cancer patients are much stronger than, than they give, they're given credit for. Cancer patients are some of the most resilient people that I know. And I say that with confidence because I'm one of them. Three years ago, I was diagnosed with early stage colon cancer. But after 20 plus years, as you mentioned, ministering to cancer patients, they're some of the most resilient individuals that I've ever met. And so the big mistake that I think that many people make because of their own fear about cancer is not giving cancer patients enough credit for being able to do what needs to be done. The key component is being available, not necessarily knowing the right things to say. It does help. It does matter. Uh, but the greatest ability that anyone to, can bring to a cancer patient or their caregiver is their availability, for sure. How about a terminal patient with stage 4 cancer? Should Christians be praying for their healing, comfort in passing from this life, God's will to be done? 
I know we've seen many people healed from cancer, even those in late stages of the disease. So how should we pray? Obviously, first and foremost, uh, we pray the will of God. What is the will of God to be done in this situation? I have certainly seen stage four cancer patients who have survived and thrived. I'm thinking of a young lady right now, 18, 19 years later, uh, with pancreatic cancer. She was told twice by two different sets of physicians that she only had like a 3% chance of survival, and she's still alive 13 years, 16 years later. Uh, so we certainly can pray for healing, uh, but we also need to be mindful of the fact, and I think that this is an important point, that we don't get to dictate or command God to make something happen. And that means that though that may be our desire and our goal, uh, we still have to remain open to the fact that potentially uh, that may not happen. And if it does not, uh, we then need to be prepared and have those surrounding us prepared to be able to help step that person through uh, that dynamic. But again, certainly people can pray and should pray uh, for healing and for the will of God to be done in their life. And then we have to take that one day and one step at a time from there, for sure. And you are a cancer survivor. Tell us what happened to you. Yeah, three years ago, I was diagnosed with early stage one colon cancer. It had not spread, thank God. Uh, it, it contained itself within the colon wall. And so I had one third of my colon removed. I tell people now they can just refer to me as Reverend Semicolon, as, as one cancer patient told me. I've literally prayed with and supported thousands of cancer patients and their caregivers over two decades. And so when it was my turn, uh, I did not question my faith. Uh, I did not, uh, was not angry with God, and I did not ask why. At the end of the day, I had been through this so many times with so many other people that I understood that, number one, bad things happen to good people. As uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner once said in a book that he wrote, uh, we understand from the New Testament perspective uh, that uh, our, our faith is tested and that there are elements and times that we all may have to experience suffering or negative dynamics. And so what it did, it, it reaffirmed my faith and it simply uh, allowed me to channel even deeper in being more empathetic and understanding the plight of a cancer patient and understand what God can do in the midst of a cancer journey because I've seen it done so many times. And tell us more about cancer care ministry and why should more churches have one? We have a biblical mandate to be prepared, equipped, and responsive to any and everyone. And the cancer community is a big part of, uh, of our experience. Prior to COVID, cancer was probably the number one uh, health issue of our day. And we kind of forgot about cancer. And once we got on the other side of COVID, we now see cancer diagnosis spiking back up because people were not going to their physician. They were not doing their diagnostic work. So cancer is still here and among us and it is sitting inside of our local churches and in some cases even among our leadership. And so we should not, we cannot ignore this. And according to Matthew 25, we need to be equipped and prepared to meet the needs of those individuals. Reverend Percy McRae of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, thank you for those insights and for setting us straight today. Thank you, God bless. Around the world, people are joining the British in mourning the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Here in the United States, President Biden offered our nation's condolences to the people of the British Commonwealth. The thoughts and prayers of the American people are with the people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth in their grief. The president ordered government buildings to fly American flags at half-staff until the Queen's funeral and burial. Several people have asked me, wasn't Biden's order unprecedented? Aren't American flags flown at half-staff only for Americans? 
Yes, for me, the honor should be reserved only for American officials and those who have served this country. But no, it's not unprecedented. Harry Truman did it to honor Queen Elizabeth's father, King George, when he passed in February 1952. More recently, President Obama ordered American flags flown at half-staff for former South African President Nelson Mandela when he passed in 2013. And Joe Biden did the same for former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe after his assassination just last July. But folks, two aspects of the response to the Queen's passing bother me more. First, did you notice that the Union Jack is on display along Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C.? You may say, so, that's a fitting tribute. With all due respect to my British friends, America fought two wars against the British on U.S. soil. Yes, that was long ago. We've forgiven the British for that. We're good friends now. But let's not forget. During the War of 1812, British troops marched down Pennsylvania Avenue on their way to burning the U.S. Capitol. And that rampage was much more destructive than the January 6th Capitol riot. At the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, the British set fire to the White House. So while displaying the British flag along Washington's Pennsylvania Avenue honors the Queen, for me, it dishonors the 10,000 American troops who fought and died in those two wars. American patriots like my fifth great-grandfather, Captain Solomon Woodworth. He was killed in the Battle of West Canada Creek in 1781, just six weeks before Yorktown, the last battle of the War for Independence. You see, it's personal for me, and I'm sure for other patriots. The other disturbing aspect of this is the nonstop 24-7 news coverage of the Queen's passing. Again, in all due respect to Queen Elizabeth and my British friends, yes, Queen Elizabeth should be honored, but for many Americans, this is a bit of overkill. She's not our queen. We threw off the monarchy 246 years ago. And if you didn't know better, this week you'd think America was still part of the British Commonwealth. And just imagine, instead of praising and celebrating the queen 24-7 for 12 days, if the American news media praised and honored Jesus nonstop for the same period of time. Now that would change the nation. And that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channel, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.